1: This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksal,
2: And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight,
1: a question of intent. Israel defended itself against allegations of genocide today at the International Court of Justice. Canada's former Attorney General believes it should never have had to.
2: Reprisal than reprise. A former U.S. Army attache to Yemen tells us his country's strikes there may have been meant to prevent further attacks by Houthi rebels, but are more likely to trigger them.
1: Pulp friction. After the pulp mill in Terrace Bay, Ontario abruptly shuts down, the mayor tells us the situation is not unfamiliar, but that doesn't make it any easier.
2: Lexicon artists, Wayne State University presents its annual list of forgotten words that it believes are due for a comeback, including some you probably use frequently, such as Blatherskite, Rawgabbit, and Thunderplump.
1: Friends item with benefits, an auctioneer in London who is also a huge fan of Friends is still processing how two of the sitcom's classic scripts sat in a drawer for decades and then managed to sell today for tens of thousands of dollars.
2: And we'll always have parrots. And the lost cockatiel we'll tell you about tonight has a remarkable musical repertoire and uses its own head as percussion. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that invites you to a Friday night cockatiel party. Yesterday, the world heard South Africa make its case against Israel at the International Court of Justice, and today it heard Israel respond to the accusation that it is violating the Genocide Convention in Gaza. The convention was set apart to address a malevolent crime of the most exceptional severity. We live at a time when words are cheap. In an age of social media and identity politics... The temptation to reach for the most outrageous term to vilify and demonize has become for many irresistible but if there is a place where words should still matter where truth should still matter it is surely a court of law that was legal advisor to israel's foreign ministry tal becker speaking at the international court of justice in the hague today The court will not actually determine whether Israel is guilty of a genocide, but it does have the power to implement provisional measures designed to protect Palestinians from, quote, further severe and irreparable harm, unquote. Erwin Kotler believes that would be a misstep. Mr. Kotler is Canada's former attorney general and former special envoy on preserving Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism. We reached him in Montreal.
1: Erwin Kotler, what was it like for you? to listen to Israel's arguments at the Hague today? Uh,
3: I, I thought that uh, Tal Becker made uh, a very uh, compelling case, in both the, uh, uh, in terms of moral clarity and in terms of uh, its legal uh, compelability. Uh, I have to say that I thought the South African uh, intervention was also effective. The problem was that, uh, is in the weaponization of the Genocide uh, Convention and the inversion of facts and and, and law uh, in this case. You know, when I watched the South African jurors, I was struck about the fact that it, it, it was as if the Israel-Hamas war uh, was all about uh, Israel's response, uh, mm. but no reference to the fact that uh, Hamas has been engaged in a standing incitement to genocide, not because I say so, but because... They say so in their founding uh, a charter, which calls for the destruction of Israel and the killing of Jews, wherever they may be. And this was ignored entirely uh, in the uh, presentations. Tal
1: Becker certainly did underline and underscore in his 30 minutes of opening arguments all that you are saying now. In its filing, as, as you know, South Africa is pointing to a number of specific acts that it refers to as, as genocidal. Pointing to the depth of the displacement of Palestinians the the deaths of tens of thousands of Palestinians, including children, issues getting aid food and water, if not as they define them, how would you define that?
3: Well, I think you know every the death of every any innocent civilian Palestinian or Israeli is uh, a, a tragedy uh, but I think here too this was entirely omitted in uh, South Africa's application. There's no reference uh, to uh, Hamas's use of Gazans as human shields to turning Gaza itself into a human shield. In, in a word, while Israel has sought to minimize uh, casualties and all the steps that it's uh, taken and errors have, have been made, Hamas not only has sought to maximize these casualties, but in fact it has invited them.
1: Is there a point where it goes too far though? Just as I came in to speak with you um, the, on the wires, UN's humanitarian chief Martin Griffiths has been speaking and, and says Israel's offensive in Gaza is a war conducted with almost no regard for the impact on civilians. That's that's a quote from him and more information from his comments are, are coming out uh, as we speak.
3: Yeah, uh, and as I said, it, it is a continuation of the uh, that horror that I mentioned, but one has to look at the responsibility. I think Secretary of State Blinken, in his just recent visit to the Middle East a few days ago, put it well. Uh, he's, he said that all this began on October 7th, and there would have been no death and destruction if on October 8th Hamas had uh, given back the hostages and given up its arms. Uh, that would have put an end to it.
1: Secretary Blinken has also said that the civilian death toll is is, is far too high. One of the things that you know... Uh, I share that, mm-hmm.
3: by the way. I yeah. think the civilian toll is is too high. But I also share the position that he's taken, uh, that this is not a genocide, that this case should never have been mm-hmm. brought, and that the responsibility lies uh, with Hamas and not with the state of Israel.
1: On the issue uh, of intent, which of course is is crucial to a case like this one. The South African legal team pointed yesterday, and will continue in its arguments, no doubt, to to point to comments made publicly from – these are high-profile uh, Israeli officials. President Isaac Herzog said, quote, it's an entire nation out there that is responsible, unquote – Heritage Minister Amitay Eliyahu said, quote, "There is no such thing as uninvolved civilians in Gaza." Unquote. And there are others, as you know. So, what do those yeah. comments signal to you? Uh,
3: some of those statements, when they were made at the time, I thought were reprehensible, and I've publicly criticized them. Some were taken out of uh, context, in particular that of uh, the President of Israel. Uh, they don't reflect or represent state policy. Those who made them should be held accountable. Yes. But you don't go ahead and put an entire state on trial uh, for these statements that have been made by the people who aren't responsible for the for the policy. What better.
1: would being held accountable look like? Should they have been removed from their positions, in your view?
3: I think that some of them were suspended or maybe they should have been removed from their position, yes. And, and I think they can also be held accountable for, um, in any you know legal proceeding as well.
1: Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau weighed in for the first time today on the ICJ case itself. We have, we have a clip from the Prime Minister. We'll play that now for you and our listeners.
2: Canada right now is uh, directly engaged in at least five different cases at the ICJ because we believe in the importance of uh, that as an institution. But our wholehearted support of the IGA and its processes does not mean uh, that we support the premise of uh, the case brought forward by South Africa.
1: If the court were to rule in favour of South Africa and implement provisional measures, what response would you like to see from the Canadian government and the Prime Minister?
3: Well, I think, you know, the Prime Minister expressed respect for uh, the ICJ as an institution, and, and uh, so do I. If they were to issue interim mortars for a ceasefire. You know, what's what's happened now in the previous six ceasefires is that Israel has ceased and Hamas has continued uh, to fire. So I think at, at this point, uh, the call should be for the return of the hostages and the disarming of Hamas. That would be an important uh, in, interim uh, judgment, but that will never happen because, as I said, this case is dealing only with Israeli responsibility and no reference to Hamas's
1: responsibility. If this case is not the right mechanism, what should be done immediately to end this end the fighting?
3: Well, to end the fighting I I I'm worried about the fact that the ICJ case uh, is is going to uh prolong the fighting because Hamas you know sort of feels emboldened because they're not being held accountable they see israel being put in the docket of the accused and they feel that uh, in fact their strategy of exclusion for accountability is working we cannot continue to give a, a pass to hamas i think we've got to focus uh, right now on the return of the hostages and on the uh, disarming of, of hamas i think those are two objectives that could then put an end to the fighting right now.
1: Erwin Kotler, I appreciate your time. Thank you.
2: Not at all. Good speaking with you. Erwin Kotler is Canada's former Attorney General and a Professor Emeritus of Law at McGill University. We reached him in Montreal. The pulp mill in Terrace Bay, Ontario, has been a fixture of the town for decades. It opened in the 1940s and has employed thousands of people over the years. If you're from Terrace Bay, chances are you're related to a mill worker if you aren't one yourself. So the mill's abrupt shutdown has come as a major blow. The mill halted operations earlier this month, threatening hundreds of jobs. Paul Maliszewski is the mayor of Terrace Bay. That's where we reached him.
1: Mayor, it was a text from a town councillor that told you about the shutdown that was coming and the layoffs that would accompany it. Did you see that coming?
4: No, no, I don't think anyone saw it coming. It was, uh, it took the employees and uh, the township uh, totally by surprise.
1: Just give a sense for our listeners who may not have ever been to Terrace Bay and seen this, this mill. How much does it mean to your community?
4: Oh, it's a major employer. For our community, we, there's 400 employ, employees there. We have uh, another town that's 14 kilometres away from us. It uh, it employs about uh, 25% of their population also. So, yeah, anytime you lose 400 jobs, you know, in two small communities, it, it, is a, it does have a big uh, impact on both communities, definitely.
1: What are your constituents telling you? as the news trickled down to them?
4: Uh, they're hopeful, I guess. They, you know, we're hoping for a quick, uh, quick resolve. Uh, we're going down to Toronto in another week and a half for a conference, and we'll be meeting with uh, Minister Smith, Minister of Natural Resources, and uh, hopefully with the uh, Employment and Immigration Minister too, because uh, we want to get this resolved as soon as possible. What would a uh, what
1: would a resolution look like? I mean, is there a chance that they're going to stay?
4: Well, resolution would be that to start the mill back up, uh, ASAP. We were told by uh, senior management in the mill that it was shut down due to market conditions, uh, the price of pulp drop. And I know, uh, you know, I worked in the mill for 35 years. I know the price of pulp goes up and down. Uh, but, you know, years ago and when I was working in there, we never shut the mill down as far as I can recall. Uh, for market conditions, we slowed the mill down. And or we stockpile the pulp. So
1: you've seen this, you've ridden this roller coaster in a different way many times yes. in the thirty-five years you worked there. So, yeah. so I hear yeah. what you're saying about the potential for optimism. But do you? Does it feel different this time from where you stand?
4: I'm. You know what? I I was laid off three times. You know uh, when we're when they switched over ownerships. Uh, I've been retired now for eight years now. Uh, so I. Uh, you know, I feel for the for the workers. I, I know what they're going through. Uh, it's been ten days now. Uh, I guess maybe a little too early to see the full impact of it, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I feel for them.
1: The Aditya Birla Group owns the mill. It has not responded to requests from our CBC News colleagues in Thunder Bay. Have you heard any specifics?
4: No. Well, I've talked to the mill manager probably just well, the day they announced the layoffs and, and he couldn't give me much information. All he told me was that it was shut down due to market conditions when I when I asked for some clarification on uh, you know, a timeline on when the mill is gonna start back up again. He told me I can't give you you know, let you know when it's gonna start back up. Depends on the market conditions. And he also said it depends on uh, where their cost of manufacture is is going.
1: Given what, what you've heard on that, market conditions and the way the economy is right now, is it realistic to think another company could take it over or that it might reopen?
4: Oh, the price of pulp is, well I looked the other day or was told the other day, it was like 1400 just over $1,400 a tonne U.S. Uh, I don't know, know how... Uh, recent that number was but uh, you know if you do the math and with the exchange rate and all that that's like two thousand dollars a ton Canadian so it's it's a viable operation I mean we we make some of the best uh, pulp in the world it is definitely a viable operation
1: why do you think in the absence of any detailed explanations from the company why do you think the company is doing this now
4: well, I I can't speculate. All I can say is what uh management told us, but I also know that uh uh there was another company uh looking at the mill and uh, the mill manager did tell me that uh they they would uh entertain serious offers if uh another company uh came to the table and was uh, was willing to uh purchase the mill.
1: If none of that comes to fruition, if someone else doesn't purchase it, if this company doesn't come around, what would that look like and mean for Terrace Bay?
4: Well, that would be devastating to the town. I mean, the, the mill pays about roughly forty percent of the of the taxes. So yeah, I mean, it would it would be a big blow. You lose forty percent of your tax base. It would definitely hurt the town. I mean, you'd have to. Uh, you know, I guess we'd have to start rethinking things on how we do things around mm-hmm. town. Uh, back in, you know, two thousand nine, uh, when the mill shut down, uh, town council back then said, uh, you know, we got to look around and start diversifying our economy. You know, maybe some tourism or whatever. I mean, we're Terrace Bay is open for business. I mean, us. Uh, you know, you know, talking to uh, different people like mm-hmm. in the government and. And stuff like that, people around the area there. Yeah, it'd be nice if we could uh, diversify our economy.
1: Mayor, I appreciate your time. Thank you.
4: Yeah, thanks a lot. Okay.
2: Paul Maliszewski is the mayor of Terrace Bay, Ontario. We reached him there.
3: I Ross. I Ross. Take
5: thee Emily. Take thee Rachel.
2: Friends, fans will know that cliffhanger from the end of season four of the sitcom, where Ross made a fundamental error, or did he, during his wedding vows to Emily in England? Today, a pair of scripts from the two-part episode, the one with Ross's wedding, sold at an auction in the UK. And let's just say they were the ones that sold for more than 35000 Canadian dollars. Amanda Butler is the head of operations at Hanson Ross Auctioneers and Valuers. We reached her in Royston, England.
1: Amanda, do you remember watching that back in the day? I do. And I remember I think everybody gasped just like they did on screen.
5: I absolutely do. And um, I remember having really mixed feelings. I was feeling sorry for Emily and then thinking, oh, yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> so you are a huge it wasn't just this episode you were a pretty big friends fan right
5: i was a big friends fan yes yes a, a, a woman of a certain age in the 90s
1: um you know, you had to be <laughs> have you have you kept that obsession with the show throughout these years um, do
5: you know what? i think i have because my children now enjoy watching it with me so we every now and again we'll get together and and watch a little bit of Friends together. So yes, I think it's still there, definitely.
1: So is it a coincidence that Ross is in the name of your auction house?
5: it certainly is,
1: yeah. Total coincidence, okay. Let's talk about what exactly was up for auction today. Uh, These scripts related to that episode we just heard from, what is it called, the one where Ross- The The one with Ross's wedding. That's right.
5: Yeah, so we had
1: two scripts. That particular bit was filmed over two episodes.
5: So um, both episodes, one started off in America, then they came to London, and then the second part was the wedding. So the scripts were from part one and part two of those episodes.
1: And this episode was, was filmed in England on location. Those are always big episodes. I don't know if they do those traveling episodes as much in network TV anymore, but they were a big deal then
5: absolutely to take all the cast and the crew on location
1: yeah and it it made it fun didn't it it took took them out of new york and put them somewhere else so these two scripts from you know when they were shooting those episodes how did they come to be in your possession
5: i had a client and we were chatting about um, an item that she was going to put into auction and at the end of the conversation she said oh and by the way i've got these two friend scripts do you think they would sell and i a massive Friends fan just said, "Yeah, yeah, absolutely, bring them in, bring them in, <laughs> just so that I could see them." So she brought them in. I of course went straight to the end of the um, episode two to have a look at that wedding scene. And um, she was actually an employee of the studios where they filmed them in London. Her job was to make sure that she cleared everything away for the next the next production company coming in and all the cast and crew were told to destroy their scripts so the ending wouldn't be leaked. And she just found them discarded and um, took them home. Well, she actually put them in a a drawer at work, forgot about them, finished working there, took them home, and they've been in
1: our house for 25 years. Are you sure she wasn't just hanging on to them because she knew they'd be worth something (laughs) someday? (laughs) I, I, I genuinely
5: don't think don't think that was her thinking at all. She told me that the, the only reason that she remembers she had them was um, sadly when Matthew Perry passed. Mm. She thought, oh, hang on a minute, I think I might have some print scripts somewhere.
1: And who, do we have any idea who might have used these scripts? Was it a member of, of the cast? Well, we think it might have been a member of
5: the production crew. So a set designer, because there is a name on there, um, on one of them, um, which is a chap called John Lanza, and he was an English set designer. We think they might have been his.
1: So initially, I was reading, you you were thinking maybe 600 to 800 pounds. What did they actually go for? They went for (laughs) 22,000 (laughs) pounds. Did that surprise you?
5: Yes. It certainly did. It certainly did. I mean, we put put them on 6800 as a sort of come and get me price, have a look at these, everyone yeah. can afford them. Um, and we thought they would go higher, but we did not expect them to go as high as they did today.
1: We're really, really pleased for our vendor. So who? Who, who bought them? Um, someone in America. It's Jennifer Aniston, for sure, right? <laughs> I mean, she's got £22,000 and then some.
5: That, if it was Jennifer Aniston, that would be amazing, wouldn't it?
1: <laughs> Can, but do you have the name? You know, you know who it is, but you can't tell us. I know who it is, but I can't, yeah, okay. I, I can't say. But, but they ha- they have
5: gone out, or they are they are going to be flying out to America fairly
1: soon. Okay, and what city in America? <laughs> do you know, what? I don't actually know. Okay. Oh, um. <laughs> I haven't I,
5: my feet haven't touched the ground since the auction finished, so um, I haven't had a chance to have a proper look yet.
1: Can you confirm or deny whether? It is a member of the cast.
5: Unless they're using a pseudonym, I don't think it's a member of the cast. Okay.
1: So are you are you thinking you're going to uh, binge some episodes in honour of the auction this weekend?
5: I absolutely am. Yeah, I'm going to go for sleep and then I'm going to watch some episodes.
1: Fair. Uh, Amanda, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
2: That was Friends fan Amanda Butler, who also happens to be the head of operations at Hanson Ross Auctioneers and Valuers. She's in Royston, England. Tensions are high around the Red Sea right now. Overnight, the U.S. and the U.K., with the support of Canada and other countries, launched strikes targeting the Iran-aligned Houthi rebels in Yemen. Those strikes followed weeks of attacks by the Houthis on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. President Joe Biden has said the strikes send a, quote, clear message that the United States and our partners will not tolerate attacks on our personnel or allow hostile actors to imperil freedom of navigation in one of the world's most critical commercial routes, unquote. In response, a Houthi spokesperson has said, quote, they were wrong if they thought that they would deter Yemen from supporting Palestine and Gaza, unquote. Adam Clements is a former U.S. Army attache to Yemen and former Pentagon official, we reached him in D.C. earlier today.
1: Adam, we've heard what the U.S. administration is saying about this. What message do you think these strikes send?
6: I think the intention of the message was, of course, deterrence. And then the messaging from that we've seen from the United Kingdom, from this government, was a message of helping and uh, self-defense of, of shipping in the Red Sea. But unfortunately, I think, given the regional context, I think that this message uh, is an escalatory stance, and one that I think could have wider consequences in the diplomatic realm as well. Uh, contextually, I think it's very important to know and then understand that the that Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, have been trying to end a years-long conflict. The Houthis have absolutely been on the better side. Not That's actually a relative term. They've succeeded in Withstanding the Saudi-led coalition bombing campaigns, they're emboldened, and they'll very definitely use this narrative domestically to help sideline some of their opponents, to rally other Yemenis uh, to their cause, because there's a very deep anti-U.S. sentiment going back to their early 2000s.
1: So you feel this will just fuel all of that rather than act as the deterrent that, that, that the states involved, that the countries involved say say it would be, but... How do you see that escalation potentially unfolding? What might happen next from where you stand?
6: Yes, I I think the problem that I don't see is I understand the objective was restoring deterrence. And I've seen a lot of very senior former U.S. officers and others that have said restoring deterrence. The problem is I don't think it does restore deterrence. I think it emboldens the group. And I think they're still capable. It may limit or interrupt, disrupt some of the Houthi capabilities to launch a manned aerial systems or other things. But the problem is, is I think there is still, uh, this won't prohibit the Houthis from still conducting these actions. And so uh, that's what we're saying. I think it's mm-hmm. it's still early just to say as well, we'll see what happens in the coming days and weeks of what happens. And from a U.S. side, I think there needs to be very clear political and military goals, because I'm not sure in the strategic sense of what those are, of what the next steps are, if the strikes didn't succeed. Mm-hmm. Is there further escalation? And then we haven't even spoken about Gaza. So regionally, there are other other areas as well that are very important in the Gaza context and also escalation on mm-hmm. the Israel-Lebanon border.
1: Apart from more clarity on what the objectives are, as you've just said, how do you think the us could and, and should have responded to what's happening.
6: Yes, I, I think that the Maritime Task Force, which this is already, there are already Maritime Task Forces operating in the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aden, the Gulf of Oman, and in the general area. This task force that is taking on the additional military task of helping protect international shipping, and shipping in the Mandeb and the Red Sea it is not a completely satisfying military solution but i think right now it is the best use of resources and that gets to my other strategic point or at least analysis on on this is that i think strategically anytime that strikes like this are conducted it takes additional resources and it doesn't make strategic sense to me when you have coalition and us forces in iraq and syria that are also need need protection from iranian backed groups in, in Iraq and Syria, we have large U.S. force presence, and also—I do say not force presence, but at least resources required in the Gaza conflict. And then, even more strategically, in that when you when you conceivably could have to take resources away from support to Ukraine in its fight against Russia, I, I think that those are much more strategic issues, and there's a risk involved in in moving some of those to address a, a Houthi threat.
1: Given the risk of escalation. Vis-a-vis the reality of what's happening and, and, you know, these ships are being targeted, people are being targeted. Why do you think the U.S. would take these steps, given the risks you've outlined and the risk of escalation in particular? Why now?
6: I think that the United States and the other, and the international community definitely sees it as a strategic interest to protect international shipping. So the Red Sea, just like South China Sea and other areas in the world where it's important of the freedom of commerce of the international rules based order. I think that's the importance here. And I think that's what the public messaging has been, at least from the UK. And also uh, now that I just saw within the last uh, few minutes here from the White House, as far as not trying to escalate in a wider conflict. So I, I think that's the point of view. But unfortunately, you can't deny or ignore the greater context of what the ramifications are in the political military context. I think there's a, the U.S. is maybe trying to separate them, but it may not have that desired effect.
1: We've reported several times on this program about the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, the people who are suffering there. What concerns do you have in terms of, of, of that situation? What kind of impact could this have on that already horrific situation for the people of Yemen?
6: I think that you already stated the, the possible consequences. The Yemeni people are ultimately, ultimately ones that have suffered from years and years of conflict, of the humanitarian crisis that has already existed before uh, the Gaza conflict, before what has just transpired. And so they're ultimately the ones that could suffer uh, even greater, even more greatly from what's going on right now.
1: Adam, I appreciate your time. Thank you.
6: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
2: Adam Clements is a former U.S. Army attache to Yemen and former Pentagon official. We reached him in Washington, D.C. earlier today.
5: From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: A lot of Canadians with family in Gaza spent much of this week waiting anxiously. On Tuesday, the federal government began taking applications for a special immigration program that opens the door for Canadians' extended family members in Gaza to join family here. And that program has faced criticism for its cap of a thousand visas and over the application process itself. Earlier this week, we talked to a Winnipeg lawyer with family in Gaza who told us the complex application process could cause serious delays in getting people to safety. He questioned the government's need for detailed information about scars, employment history, and social media accounts, and he called on the federal government to treat applicants the same way it would treat anyone else wanting to come to Canada. Today, Immigration Minister Mark Miller responded to that criticism.
7: We absolutely need to understand someone's history, particularly when they're not Canadian, uh, when they are not permanent residents. I understand how onerous this can be, particularly working in an environment where people's lives are at risk, but we do have to take security precautions. This is a process that we have gone through, for example, in Afghanistan, to the best of my knowledge, and we need to make sure that we have the proper security protocols and screenings being done on people. Uh, The challenge of the situation, Catherine, is such is that we can't go into Gaza to do biometrics and to do the screenings there. So we have to have certain assurances about people before we can actually get them through Gate, which goes through its own set of screenings by Israeli authorities, uh, Egyptian authorities, and even a terrorist organization in Hamas to then proceed to a third country in Egypt where we do a second round of screenings and biometrics. So we need to know who we're dealing with. And that is not necessarily certain all the time. Again, as a humanitarian, I want to get these people out as quickly as possible. uh, But we can't compromise security. And that is just the reality of the situation. Once we get a sense of who these people are and do these checks, hopefully as quickly as possible, we'll get them out and hopefully get them to safety.
8: So some of these detailed standards, I take your point about using the information to determine who people are. But is this something that other countries have asked Canada for, Israel, Egypt, in order to help understand who these people are?
7: I'm not going to speak publicly about the security relationship we have with with our partners, but certainly those countries will want to see who they are dealing with before they let anyone out, and I can't control that. We've had some frustrating back and forth with authorities trying to get our own citizens out, so I can imagine um, the screenings that they would want to apply. But I don't control that, and then again, in in that scenario, this is the best we can do, uh, willing to improve it, willing to be flexible on a humanitarian basis, given the facts on the ground uh, and the flexibility that some of our officers will have to make uh, on-site determinations, a risk-based profile based on the age of the individual uh, and their own judgment. But again, uh, th- both security and the exigency of getting people out as quickly as possible are, are top of mind.
8: I-, I take your point that you don't control it. Would you say, though, that it is reasonable to ask someone who is living in a refugee camp, uh, struggling to find food, against disease, irregular access to communications. To ask them, for example, who their employer was when they were seventeen years old.
7: Look, I, I, between uh, you and I, uh, litigating these publicly is, is is probably not something that will uh, will yield a consensus on either on either side. But I think we need to know this information to make mm-hmm. sure we know who we are getting. Uh, do we need okay. to be flexible in certain circumstances? I, I think. We, we do just because of the situation on the ground. But again, it's very difficult to compromise the security of Canadians. Um, and we need to know who we're getting out, particularly when we have had no contact as a country with them.
2: That was Federal Immigration Minister Mark Miller speaking with Catherine Cullen, host of CBC's The House. You can hear the full interview on The House tomorrow morning after the 9 o'clock news, 9.30 in Newfoundland, or wherever you get our podcasts. Look, don't mistake me for a blatherskite or a pocky raw gabbit. I just want to twinkle your heartstrings. These words are meant to evoke a petrichor after a thunderplump. Put simply, I want to help give your vocabulary a bit of a figurative Kerg laugh with a dollop of newly revived words that you can use at your next coffee clutch, or even in a court of law if you're a pettifogger. Wayne State University has released its annual word warriors list, a collection of 10 words it believes have fallen into disuse, but are due for a comeback, which we have tried to help give them by including all of them in that first paragraph of this introduction to Neil's interview with Christopher Williams. Mr. Williams heads up the Word Warriors program at Wayne State. and We reached him in Detroit, Michigan.
1: Chris, I'm looking at the 10 words that, that are on this year's list. Which one made you the happiest? The one that made me the happiest, uh, you know, honestly, there were two. And they're right next to each other
0: on the list. So I smiled really big when I learned what twankle meant. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone submitted that a few months back. And it it has to do with someone plucking a guitar or an instrument Mm -hmm. uh, with their fingers just kind of absolutely sitting there and twanging away and it's twinkle and it made me smile because as soon as I learned that and put that word with it it was exactly what the word (laughs) sounded like Mm -hmm. I I could see the person sitting there on their porch with the guitar
1: it's evocative and Um, they all are in different ways but why not twangle I don't know why they went with twinkle and not
0: twangle but for some reason I like twinkle better because it's just a step away from twinkle yeah so it's, it's got this little uh poetic feel to it. I hear
1: that. I hear that. And the other one?
0: thunderplump, uh, <laughs> Right above that on the list. Yeah. This means a heavy downpour during a thunderstorm. Uh, so this is what my dad would call a cloudburst. Um, you know, it, it feels a little whimsical
1: to, to yeah. look out
0: at that summer storm and say, oh, it's a thunderplump." plump. I, I, I love it. It's it's a playful word.
1: Okay. There's also another rain-related one, petrichor. Petrichor is interesting because While most of the words on this
0: list are centuries old and have fallen out of usage over the centuries, petrichor is less than 100 years old, and it's already a rare word. Uh, This is a word that means the smell that comes after a uh, heavy rain in the summer. So, you know, you're outside, it rains, the rain clears up, and you just have this great smell, and petrichor is what describes that smell, and There was no word for that prior to 1964. I think they just described it as agrarian odor. Um, And then some researchers in Australia coined the term, and it actually comes from the Greek word petra for rock, and I believe kor, which was like the blood of the gods. So it's really the smell of the earth.
1: I was wondering. I'm not a linguistics expert, certainly. I love words. But I was trying to figure out what the etymology was. So thank you for, do, for doing that. And interestingly, you say it's fallen into uh, disuse, but it was just a crossword clue last week. They was, were peeking at our list. <laughs> they probably were. You're right. You're already affecting <laughs> change and getting people to, to use it further. How do you pick this top 10, though?
0: Well, the cool thing about Word Warriors is it's open to anyone around the world all year round. So there's a website people can go to and submit words that they think are worth bringing back. Maybe they've read them, maybe they've heard them in conversation, and they think, man, we don't use this word enough. I haven't heard this word. I'm going to submit it to Word Warriors. And every week we go through and we pick one word, and we put it up on our Facebook site as the word of the week. And then I go through at the end of the year, and I look at the list of words we've picked throughout the year, and we look at the engagement they've gotten on social media, how many people have been talking about it how many people have liked that word, shared that word. And from that, we, we picked 10 words that were like, okay, these are the words people seem to feel very strongly about. Let's recommend using these in our conversation and in
1: our writing in the next year. There's some good uh, insults, <laughs> insult words. <laughs> if you want to be you know, Pocky's mad at somebody. Yeah, there's a pocky. Yeah, why didn't you use that one in a sentence?
0: Pocky, someone has a pocky sense of humor mm-hmm. if they are mean and... Uh, kind of cynical. If that's their okay. t- type of humor, they're mocking and cynical. They're a pocky person. And they're probably pl- prone to call someone a uh, blatherskite or a rogabbit <laughs> if they catch them uh, going on and on about things they don't have
1: much knowledge about. We never want to be called either of those things because I know what they mean now, but use <laughs> raw gabbit, uh in a sentence for us. You know what? A
0: lot of people I see on social media are raw gabbits. They they talk very confidently about things
1: they don't really know a lot about. A word for our times, clearly. And and (laughs) Blatherskype, just so people aren't uh, left hanging on that. Blatherskype is very
0: similar to Raw Gabbitt. It's a person who talks at great length without making much sense.
4: So I I
0: think our uh, our social media feeds are also filled with a lot of Blatherskypes.
1: I also like uh, pettifogger, but that's very specific, speaking to an inferior legal practitioner.
0: Yeah, it makes me think of uh, lawyers on TV shows.
1: (laughs) One thing that stood out, though, dollop, that doesn't seem to be a rare word. No, you know, I hear dollop occasionally. Uh But the interesting thing is I've been talking to
0: people about this. Whenever I hear people use dollop, it's always because they want to sound like they're talking in an older fashion. They will they will really? use it to say, oh, I'll throw the dollop on of that. And they're saying it because they know it's an old fashioned word. So I think that's why that caught on is people know it and they like it. Mm-hmm. But I think everyone's aware it, it doesn't get used formally
1: that much. You've been doing this for a while, so have you noticed trends of of the ten that, that you choose or what people submit over these years? Do trends emerge? You know, I think every
0: year we have a few pairings, um like this year with uh Thunderplump and Petricor and Blatherskite and Rog Abbott, it seems like something every year kind of hits the zeitgeist where it pulls these words up and it's, oh, we have this word now to describe this thing we're seeing in our society. But I, I think what people just love is they love the words that I think sound very whimsical, like mm-hmm. a thunder plump or a twinkle. Um, they, they love words that are colorful. And I think that's because so much of our conversation is so basic and loses that voice and identity um because you know we're we're talking to communicate and to be heard mm-hmm. and to be clear and those are all great things but we want our talking and our writing to also have identity and
1: personality and these words add so much of that yeah and especially when so much of that talking is not even face to face it's uh abbreviations and texts and things like that
0: oh absolutely your fingers really have to do a workout to uh put Petty Fogger in a text message.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I even want to know what the autocorrect on that would be at this point, Chris. (laughs) But I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate your time.
2: Christopher Williams is the head of the Word Warriors program at Wayne State University. We reached him in Detroit, Michigan. As a Canadian program, as it happens, talks a lot about meters and kilometers. But whenever possible, we also talk about yards. Since the very beginning, which was two years ago, we have closely followed Gotland, Sweden's ugliest lawn competition. And after that inaugural contest, which is an effort to encourage locals to use less water, we thought interest might dry up. But after receiving global attention, the competition announced it would search for a world champion. We reached Kathleen Murray, the first winner of the world's ugliest lawn competition in Sanford, Tasmania.
1: Kathleen, you are looking out at your award-winning lawn right now. Describe for our listeners what you see.
8: Well, I can see an early riser bandicoot already digging in my garden, looking for things to eat. (laughs) And... I left the chooks out early this morning, and I had to make sure not to step on the skeletal remains of the blue tongue lizard, oh. or the decomposing brush tail possum.
1: Oh my, that's and that's not even what won you this competition—the carcasses. No,
8: no. Well, well, basically, it's it's incredibly rugged where I live. It's hmm. right on the coast, overlooking Ralphs Bay, and we're in the rain shadow caused by Mount Wellington, so. It's the driest place in Tasmania. You can definitely see that I've got sandy soil because you see a lot of it in the photos with massive holes dug in it by the bandicoots. And one of my sisters tells me that a single bandicoot can shift up to four tonnes of dirt a year. And I now have four living in my backyard.
1: So there's a lot of dirt being shifted around.
8: Oh, yes. And... um, Apparently the previous owners had attempted and failed to seed the lawn with imported western grass because it's just so dry here. Unless you water it constantly, it will die. And there's only a few clumps of that left and all the rest is native grass, which the parrots love because it has their favorite grass seed on it. It doesn't grow very tall. It only grows about... 10 centimeters tall and you don't need to water it and it just looks after itself it's a little bit like um, a national park in my backyard where people don't water it people don't rake the leaves people don't pick up sticks and so it becomes a natural habitat for all the local wildlife Um, there's places for lizards to hide and the bandicoots have come back I have parrots everywhere there's so much wildlife in my backyard and all I have to do is sit at my kitchen table, drink my cup of tea and enjoy it. And that's just the way you like it. That's right. Um, I chose, even though I have four kids, we chose pets that wouldn't eat the wildlife. So instead of having cats and dogs, we have chickens or chooks as we call them in in Australia. And um, each of my four kids had a chook each and they also laid eggs. And they get along with everyone, including the bandicoots.
1: So, yeah, you see beauty, and I think rightly so, based on your description, where other people would not. But when you heard about this this competition, did you think it, we've got a lock on this?
8: Well, I thought I had a very good chance because a lot of people who visit criticize my backyard. And they probably think, what was she thinking? But... um yeah, it kind of all began in twenty sixteen when the ex husband left with the lawn mower and I never replaced either. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well bravo. So why well, put I know, up with that, right? Yeah.
8: Yeah, so I've sort of simplified my life. Um, no mower and no one to mow it, but that's okay.
1: <laughs> so you are you are loving life right now and loving this honour, it sounds like.
8: Yeah, it's it's very exciting. I don't normally just get this kind of attention. But mm-hmm. um, no, it's, it's pretty quiet where I live in Tasmania. And it's like, we don't have mains water here. We're all on tank water in the South Arm District. So that makes water frugality even more important because if you run out, you can't flush toilets, you can't wash your hands, you can't cook food you can't wash vegetables and it can take up to two weeks in summer for one of the water trucks to be able to fit you into their schedule Mm -hmm. to get to to get to you so um with four children like teenage kids having showers and attempting like all teenage kids to spend as long as they can in the shower it, it just really makes you so careful about water use
1: that is what this competition is is all about encouraging people around the world to to conserve water instead of trying to have perfectly manicured and green lawns interestingly you know one thing that stood out to us is what one of the judges said uh, describing your lawn as quote soulful because it had an understanding of what's happening unquote how did that comment sit with you
8: i forwarded it to my sister because her last comment to me was I don't know why you're so happy about getting the award for the world's worst gardener.
1: <laughs> and did she reply to to that uh, quote?
8: Um, well, she's still jealous. I just said she's jealous she didn't win my recycled hand-me-down T-shirt from last year's winner.
1: <laughs> you're wearing it proudly as you sip your coffee and stare at the bandicoots and lizard carcass? Yes. Yes, I
8: am. It's good to get into character before a radio interview. <laughs>
1: Kathleen, a pleasure speaking with you. Congratulations. Thank you so very much.
2: Kathleen Murray is the inaugural winner of the World's Ugliest Lawn Competition. We reached her in Sanford, Tasmania. not deliberately withholding information. If he could, he would sing like a canary, but as it is, he can only sing like a cockatiel due to his being one. The lost bird was discovered in greater Manchester, UK last November, and we still don't know who his owner is, but we do know he loves to sing and chatter. They've named him peekaboo because that's one of his favorite phrases to repeat. And he also loves to belt out this little number. That 's a lot of fun, even if it is you know, a little pitchy, it was really pitchy. it was terrible he 's a terrible singer. Could you even tell what that was the here this will help. <laughs> See, he was singing, if you're happy and you know it, to the delight of the person who's been fostering Peekaboo, who says, Peekaboo is such a happy bird. As well as singing, he chirrups hello and good boy, and he bangs on his bar as he does. He is so funny. Oh yeah, he, he definitely bangs on his bar. You can hear him do it. Computer, enhance. See, when he gets to the clap your hands part, he bashes his beak against the bar he's sitting on for the amusement of his human listeners because he's so happy and funny. At least that's what we assume. It's also possible that he is very angry because it's possible that for him, if you're happy and you know it, is the most extreme expression of rage imaginable, which would also explain the head banging. So maybe he murdered his previous owner. Probably not, but whoever adopts him should be careful. There may be murder in his history, and history, like Peekaboo, repeats itself.